Hey guys, it's Faye here with another shout out for one of our lovely patrons. This week we want to give a shout out to Edie McConaughey, who's one of our fairy godmidwives at Brown. Edie is always there with a big smile and a hug for you whenever you see her. So Edie, I'm so glad that you're listening to this podcast. For those of you that also want a shout out from the show, go ahead and go to www.patreon.com slash coffee and become a $10 a month donor to also get a shout out. Hey, Faye, I know you love the OBG project. I love the OBG project, but have you heard about this new thing that they've got on their website? Yeah, I just heard that they got something called the Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas, which apparently is a reference library of standard second trimester images with brief summaries, tips, and links. It's really, really neat. It's really extensive, and it's probably perfect for anybody that's a resident listening that needs a refresher on what I'm looking for or what that fuzzy image on the CREOG exam is, or for anybody out in the community in terms of what does normal look like. This is currently live for everybody who is subscribed to OBG First, and um, as we've said multiple times on the podcast, if you are a fourth-year resident in OBGYN, you can actually have OBG First free for one whole year. Check out our website, www.creagsovercoffee.com, to find out how you can get OBG First free for one year as a chief resident, and check out their second trimester ultrasound atlas. guys welcome back this is Faye this is Nick and this is Creogs over, over coffee. coffee today we'll be talking about the management of two things that I absolutely love preterm labor and peep prom that's right so today this is for all of you out there, regardless if you're obstetrics, if you're family medicine, if you're emergency medicine. Um, we want to help you manage optimally preterm labor and preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes. So we hope that this kind of helps to summarize all of those new guidelines that are contained again in ACOG Bulletin 171 and ACOG Bulletin 188. So Nick, what are our learning objectives? So number one, we're going to understand what the definitions are of these two entities, again, preterm labor and preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, or PPROM for short. Number two, we'll talk about the diagnosis. And number three, we're going to talk about the management of each of these entities, depending on the gestational age. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into those definitions. So preterm labor is defined as the onset of painful contractions that lead to cervical change prior to 37 weeks, but after 20 weeks. And PPROM, or preterm prelabor rupture of membranes, is defined as rupture of membranes prior to 37 weeks, but after 20 weeks, and prior to onset of painful contractions that lead to cervical change. So, Nick, we have these two things that occur in, in pregnant women. Why do we care? Hey, we care because it's a big problem, right? Preterm labor is the leading cause of neonatal mortality and the most common reason for antenatal hospitalization. In the United States, 12% of all births are preterm, and in these patients, preterm labor precedes approximately 50%. And it costs a lot of money to care for all these patients who come in with preterm labor or suspected preterm labor. A 2006 report suggested that preterm birth costs the U.S. over $26 billion per year. Wow. 
Similarly, with preterm prelabor rupture membranes, birth occurs generally within one week in 50% of those who are diagnosed with PPROM. So this is, again, a major contributor ultimately to preterm labor and that neonatal morbidity and mortality that we discussed earlier. Right. 15 to 25% of admission have clinically evident intraamniotic infections. 15 to 20% end up with a postpartum infection. And then placental abruption can also complicate 2 to 5% of pregnancies with PPROM. So there's lots of morbidity to go around for both mom and neonate. Absolutely. What about diagnosis, Faye? What's, what do we need to do to get our heads around that? All right. So let's first talk about preterm labor because, you know, preterm labor and PPROM, a lot of it is interlinked. Mm-hmm. So preterm labor is a clinical diagnosis. It's based on regular uterine contractions and changes in cervical dilation or effacement or both right? Just like how you diagnose labor. It is kind of difficult to assess who will go into preterm labor and continue to delivery and who will not because approximately 30% of those in preterm labor will have it spontaneously resolve. And, you know, Nick, you and I, we both have had patients that we think are in preterm labor. We bring them in, we watch them overnight, their contractions go away. And then ultimately in a couple days, we send them home. Yeah. And the converse too, you know, you have the patients who you like call a soft call admission and then all of a sudden they're fully and no far away from the labor floor. Exactly. So generally, we're going to be talking about preterm labor after viability, and that's different depending on your hospital. But just for the purposes of the podcast, we're going to be calling it after 24 weeks because intervention prior to viability really depends on your institution, and it can be controversial because we did say, you know, preterm labor is after 20 weeks. A couple of other things, so fetal fibronectin and cervical length, both have been used to determine whether or not someone is in preterm labor. And of course, it's because both um, have been associated with preterm labor, positive fetal fibronectin and a short cervical length. Sometimes it can help healthcare providers reduce the use of unnecessary resources. So if you're already thinking about sending someone home and they have a negative fetal fibronectin or they have a normal cervical length, you may be able to say, oh, it's okay, I feel better about sending this person home. However, this has only been seen in observational studies and not in randomized controlled trials. And finally, the positive predictive value of both are very poor and should not be used alone to diagnose preterm labor. What about PPROM? How do we diagnose that? Yeah, so PPROM generally is a clinical diagnosis. So again, the classic questions for medical students out there are the physical exam findings of PPROM. You see pooling of fluid in the vagina. On a microscopy slide, you see ferning of the dried amniotic fluid caused by the salinity of the fluid. You see nitrazine positive or a basic pH when applied to nitrazine paper. Sometimes you can use other things to help with suspected diagnosis. So for instance, if you have a DVP or deepest um, vertical pocket of amniotic fluid on an ultrasound that has drastically changed, that may help support it. Um, Again, sometimes outside of the viable period, you may do things like instill dyes and see if you get something on like a tampon or a pad. Um, But again, we're going to be discussing viable PPROM today, so we'll leave those for maybe another day. I guess, Faye, what do we do with management or what should we be thinking about in terms of management of these entities? Yeah, so, um, and again, I want to put in a word on pre-viable preterm labor and pre-viable PPROM, or as I like to call it, PPPROM. Remember, viability is on a spectrum and it will depend on your institution. Some institutions will start resuscitation at 23 weeks, others will not until 24 weeks, some may be as early as offering resuscitation even at 22 weeks. 
For example, at our institution, we begin to discuss resuscitation intervention at around 23 weeks. And according to ACOG, prior to viability, intervention is controversial and should always be a discussion with your patient. All right, so on to management of preterm labor, Nick. What do we do? Yeah, so with respect to preterm labor, there are a couple things that we need to do to optimize things for the neonate. The first and probably most important thing to get started is magnesium sulfate for cerebral palsy prophylaxis. The BEAM trial by Dr. Rouse et al. in 2008 demonstrated that a 6-gram bolus of magnesium sulfate followed by 2 grams per hour prior to delivery decreased the risk of moderate or severe cerebral palsy significantly. This should be given to patients between 24 and 32 weeks. Faye, what about steroids? Yeah, so prior to 34 weeks, we give steroids for fetal lung maturity, and steroids have also been associated with a decrease in intraventricular hemorrhage and necrotizing enterocolitis, or NEC. More recently, we have started to give what are called ALP steroids, or antenatal late preterm steroids, which are steroids that are given prior to 37 weeks, and this has been associated with a decreased respiratory morbidity in infants that are born preterm. And finally, we'll also talk about rescue steroids. So rescue steroids can be considered um, as early as seven days after a prior dose if it is clinically indicated. So for example, someone who comes in at 28 weeks, you think that they're in preterm labor, you give them steroids, they ultimately end up petering out, you send them home, they come back, they're 32 weeks, and now you think they're also in preterm labor again, you are okay to give some rescue steroids at that point. However, rescue steroids should not be given after 34 weeks. The dosing for steroids should be two 12 milligram doses of beta-methasone given intramuscularly 24 hours apart or four 6 milligram doses of dexamethasone administered intramuscularly every 12 hours. What about tocolytics, Nick? I mean, we have these great drugs. It sounds like they make contractions go away. How come I can't just keep giving them to my patients until they're not preterm anymore? Yeah, I mean, that would be a great solution, right? You just stop the contractions and then you stop labor. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't really panned out that way, though. The literature, the evidence really isn't there for tocolytics. And we usually just give them to get people to steroid complete or mm. 24 hours after the last dose of betamethasone or dexamethasone has been given. Mm. Generally, we don't give tocolytics either after 34 weeks because, again, it doesn't improve outcomes for the neonate at all. And really, tocolytics in general, again, don't lead to more favorable neonatal outcomes. Mm. There are certainly some contraindications, too, to be aware of to tocolytics. Intrauterine fetal demise or lethal fetal anomalies are things that should not be given tocolytics for. A non-reassuring fetal status in order to delay delivery um, or de trying to delay delivery in the setting of severe preeclampsia or eclampsia, again, would also be contraindications. Any other things that make mom unstable, such as hemodynamic instability, chorea amnionitis leading to sepsis, PPROM actually is another contraindication. All of those things should be considered um, before giving a patient tocolytics. So basically, if mom is sick, if baby is sick, or there's some other overriding concern about giving tocolytics, again, they don't necessarily improve outcomes, so they're not the worst thing to leave off. Prior to 32 weeks, the medication that we give is indomethacin. Institutions have different protocols for dosing of indomethacin, so again, check with your institutional protocol on that. After 32 weeks, nifedipine is used as the prostaglandins in indomethacin can lead to early closure of the ductus arteriosus. And again, depending on your institution, there will be different dosing protocols for nifedipine. 
Faye, what about antibiotics in preterm labor? So you should be giving antibiotics if you think the patient will deliver and you do not know their GBS status because in a preterm infant, um, GBS sepsis is more devastating. Um, although you should try and obtain a GBS status just in case that they peter out or their labor course goes slower than you think it would. What are some other things, Nick, that I, you know, we've probably recommended in the past, but we found that they don't actually do anything? Yeah, these are the questions that you get asked all the time, right? Especially for patients that come in and they think they're in preterm labor and we think they're in preterm labor, and then ultimately they do the petering out thing, right? They kind of stop, and then the question, of course, the next morning when we go to round on the patient is like, is there anything that I can do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Things that we used to think helped. Bed rest. Um no longer. No. no. Bed rest just predisposes people to thromboembolism, so, and it doesn't help improve outcomes at all. Other people think things like pelvic rest or not having orgasms and things are also another part of it, and again, that also has not shown to be helpful at all. Sedation, prolonged tocolytic therapy uh, also doesn't help, and then hydration is another one that, again, can lead to like Braxton Hicks type of contractions as the uterus is a muscle, but it also, again, if it's true preterm labor, Hydration isn't going to help. All right. So I think we've covered a lot of preterm labor, and let's move on to PPROM. So I know a lot of management for PPROM and preterm labor is going to be similar. Talk to me a little bit more about management for PPROM, Nick. Yeah. So let's start out with one thing that doesn't change, and that's the magnesium sulfate. Again, cerebral palsy prophylaxis is the reason that you're using it, and you're using it between 24 and 32 weeks. Hey, I think one that's a little bit more controversial is steroids. So, yes. So in terms of steroids, you still should give steroids for fetal lung maturity before 34 weeks, so between 24 to 33 and 6, um, or earlier than 24, depending on your institution and when they resuscitate. The controversy comes with rescue steroids because there is an increased risk of neonatal sepsis and infection from the effects of corticosteroids. And that's why we don't just keep giving multiple doses of steroids in people who have PPROM. Our institution has kind of gone back and forth on that second dose or the rescue steroids prior to 34 weeks. So for this, I would say check with your institution and speak with your MFM attendings and also, of course, have a discussion with your patients as to whether or not a dose of rescue steroids for PPROM is appropriate for them. Alp steroids would not be appropriate in this setting because patients with PPROM should be delivered at 34 weeks. Faye, I have heard actually though, isn't there something out about like trying to keep these patients pregnant maybe even a little bit longer? Yeah. So ACOG's current stance is still 34 weeks. And so if we're practicing under ACOG guidelines, we shouldn't deviate from that. And you know, you shouldn't be going and telling your attendings to prolong to prolong pregnancies in people who have PPROM. But there is a recent Cochrane review that came out that talked about potentially better neonatal outcomes if we prolong the pregnancies of patients with PPROM actually to 36 and 6 before we induce their labor. Oh, wow. And actually, ARCOG, or the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, came out with this statement, and they're actually recommending expected management until 37 weeks for PPROM. Oh, wow. So maybe some change on the horizon. Potentially, yeah. All right, Nick, what about some other things? Um, you already said no for tocolytics. Um, talk to me a little bit more about antibiotics. Yeah, so two things in mind here. So we talked already about group B strep. 
Um, and again, in that setting where you're thinking somebody is going to deliver, you definitely want to be sure that you're covering for group B strep. Though in the patient who has what we deem to be like stable PPROM or you're still trying to determine exactly what's going on, we do give latency antibiotics. Again, the thought process behind PPROM in a lot of cases that, that there is some sort of subclinical infection going on. So ultimately what we use is a kind of weird antibiotic regimen, admittedly. For the first 48 hours, ampicillin, 2 grams IV every 6 hours, along with erythromycin, 250 milligrams IV every 6 hours, should be given for the first 48 hours. Subsequently, for 5 days, you switch to oral antibiotics, 250 milligrams of amoxicillin every 8 hours, and erythromycin, 333 milligrams every eight hours, those two for the following five days after the first two days of IV antibiotics. Now, there aren't many of us that have erythromycin around anymore, so many places have now substituted that for azithromycin, which is given 500 milligrams on the first day and 250 milligrams each day thereafter. We know that latency antibiotics prolong pregnancy they decrease the rates of maternal and neonatal infections and also reduce, by extending the pregnancy, gestational age-dependent mortality or morbidity. We answered the question a little bit earlier, but maybe we can dive into it a little bit more now, is when do you deliver these patients? Yeah, so let's start with causes for immediate delivery. So these would be things like non-reassuring fetal status, infection like chorea amnionitis, placental abruption, or maternal instability. These are reasons to not wait on delivery. However, if mom is stable, if baby is stable, you can actually do expectant management with latency antibiotics and all of the above and try to prolong these pregnancies until 34 weeks. So we kind of talked about this already, which is how long is too long to wait because you're balancing it, thinking that these patients are eventually going to get infected versus the risks of a preterm delivery with a preterm neonate. So like we talked about it before, ACOG currently recommends 34 weeks and definitely not after 37 weeks. However, if a patient really wants to continue past 34 weeks, you can hold a discussion with them regarding risks and benefits of prolonging their pregnancy. And like we said, very recently, ARCOG on June 17th, actually, of this year, 2019, actually recommended expectant management until 37 weeks. And this also leads to one other question, um, which is also addressed by ARCOG a little bit. Should all PPROM patients stay in the hospital? Because, Nick, both of us have had patients who break their water 24 and 1. They come in, they stay in the hospital literally for 10 weeks, and then we induce their labor. And this poor woman has been in the hospital for three months of her pregnancy. Yeah. And you've got to think, too, about all the sort of, you know, the costs that come with that, right? Like, you know, she's sitting in a hospital bed and is not in her usual environment. She's mm -hmm. probably not moving around as much, putting her at risk for venous thromboembolism. Um, no, it's psychologically damning, especially, you know, we're lucky that our unit where we keep antepartum patients has like windows and stuff, but right. in some places, like they really don't have that luxury. And so yeah. this can be like very psychologically damaging for patients to have to stay in the hospital. Definitely. So kind of answering this question of should 
patients with PPROM stay in the hospital. There have been two small studies in Canada and in France that actually did not show a difference in outcomes for patients managed at home versus patients managed in the hospital. However, there are really specific requirements for eligibility for outpatient management. And because these numbers were so small, the studies are not powered to see if there's an actual difference. All women were monitored in the hospital for at least 48 to 72 hours prior to being told that they were eligible for outpatient management. Um, so that's another consideration in this. At this time, the recommendation is for inpatient management. Another obstetric conundrum is the patient who maybe has had a preterm birth before, has a cerclage in place, and now, unfortunately, has broken her water with the cerclage there. What do we do, Faye? So really, according to ACOG, there's not enough evidence to recommend for or against, and you can leave it in after having a conversation with the patient, and you technically don't give them prolonged antibiotics if you were to leave a surclage in. But I think, again, certain institutions will have different policies, and if you talk to three MFMs, you're going to have four different opinions. Mm -hmm. So Nick, what about considerations for the next pregnancy, right? That patient who's been sitting on our floor for three months, now she's delivered. She wants to get pregnant now um, with her next child. What do you tell her? Yeah, so for patients who have had a preterm birth, um, regardless of whether the circumstances were preterm labor or preterm prelabor rupture of membranes, they are at increased risk for the same in a subsequent pregnancy. There are two sorts of interventions that we can offer currently. Um, one is the use of cervical length screening in between 16 and 24 weeks gestation. Cervical length screening is done transvaginally. So cerclage placement should be considered if there's a shortened cervical length of less than two and a half centimeters in somebody who's had a prior preterm birth. The other intervention that we have to offer are 17 hydroxyprogesterone caproate injections. 17-hydroxyprogesterone, or 17-OHP for short, should be given to patients with a prior spontaneous preterm birth between 16 and 36 weeks of gestation if, again, that preterm delivery occurred prior to 36 weeks gestation and was not iatrogenic. All right, Nick, I think we've covered preterm labor and PPROM, so let's go ahead and summarize. Perfect. So we started out with just definitions, and those are really important to understand. Again, preterm labor is the onset of painful contractions leading to cervical change between 20 and 37 weeks. Preterm prelabor rupture of membranes, or PPROM, is rupture of membranes in that same time period between 20 weeks and 37 weeks and prior to the onset of painful contractions that lead to cervical change. The next question we answered is why do we care? And that's because preterm labor is one of the leading causes of neonatal mortality um, and the most common reason for antenatal hospitalization and is quite common, 12% of all births. Um, and of course, this leads to a lot of, like we said, neonatal morbidity and mortality. We then talked about the diagnosis, noting that both of these are actually clinical diagnoses. So preterm labor is based on, again, regular uterine contractions and observed change in cervical dilation, effacement, or both. Fetal fibronectin and cervical lengths are adjunctive measures but should not be relied upon to make a diagnosis. PPROM, on the other hand, is a clinical diagnosis based on those classic signs on physical exam, pooling, ferning, and a positive nitrazine. Sometimes, again, ultrasound or tampon dye test or amnesure testing can be used as adjunctive, but again, your physical exam is the primary diagnostic tool here. 
In terms of management, we'll be posting a handy dandy guide again on our website. But we talked about management of preterm labor in terms of magnesium sulfate, which should be given for cerebral palsy prophylaxis prior to 32 weeks. We talked about steroids for fetal lung maturity prior to 34 weeks and also giving ALP steroids prior to 37 weeks. And rescue steroids should not be given after 34 weeks. We also talked about tocolytics, giving indocin prior to 32 weeks and nifedipine after 32 weeks, and why they should only be given until beta complete, because they generally don't work after 48 hours and they generally don't improve neonatal outcomes. And finally, patients should be given antibiotics if you do not know their GPS status. Um, and finally, we covered some things that we used to do that weren't helpful, like bed rest, hydration, pelvic rest, sedation, or prolonged tocolytic therapy. The management of PPROM mirrors the management of preterm labor in many ways, including the administration of magnesium sulfate, and the administration of steroids between 24 weeks and 33 and 6 weeks. There is some controversy regarding the administration of rescue steroids in this population, though, and at least according to ACOG guidelines, currently ALPS steroids should not be administered since these patients should be delivered at 34 weeks. We don't tocalize patients with PPROM. Um, and antibiotics are important, though. Um, antibiotics are given as latency antibiotics, attempting to prolong the pregnancy. Um, ampicillin, 2 grams IV every 6 hours, along with either erythromycin, 250 milligrams IV, or azithromycin, 500 milligrams the first day, followed by 250 the second day. Then followed by amoxicillin, 250 milligrams every 8 hours orally, and either erythromycin or azithromycin, um, for the subsequent five days. With respect to delivery for PPROM, you want to deliver patients for usual obstetric indications immediately for things like non-reassuring fetal status, choreo, placental abruption, or maternal instability. With respect to routine delivery, it should occur by ACOG guidelines at 34 weeks. However, be on the lookout because there's some new evidence coming and some new recommendations actually from ARCOG that may recommend expectant management until 37 weeks. Consideration should also be for patients with PPROM to stay in the hospital until they are 34 weeks or until delivery, um, and you can consider leaving a cerclage in place if the patients do have a cerclage. Finally, we talked about considerations for the next pregnancy, including cervical length screening between 16 and 24 weeks with possible cerclage placement if the cervical length is less than 2.5 centimeters, and using 17-hydroxyprogesterone cap rate injections between 16 and 36 weeks if the delivery was prior to 36. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you like the show today, give us a five-star rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on social media at Twitter at Creogs Over Cough One, on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, and on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee for some cool swag or a shout out from the show. Check out our awesome website at www.creogsovercoffee.com where you can find helpful resources for this and all of our episodes. And finally, if you think that we made a mistake or you want to hear a specific episode, go ahead and give us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. as I like to call it, PP prom. <laughs> um, <Sorry. laughs> oh, we shouldn't laugh about that. Ugh.